Okay, uh, Professor Tufano here. This is uh, Chapter 10, Part 2 of 2, and this is the chapter on communication in close relationships in the Adler interplay text. So we're going to start Section 2, or Part 2, on page 315, and it begins with uh, uh, talking about communication uh, in the family. And under that section, we have creating the family through communication, communication uh, rituals and rules, patterns of family communication. Um, that's probably a good start, right? Okay, it says, a few generations ago, what is a family was an easy question to answer. For most people, common notions of a family um, and uh, would have typically shared uh, stressed shared residencies, reproduction or adoption of children um, and by different uh, adults and socially approved sexual relationships. However, a more recent study of college students found that their definition of family contained, although many of the same elements, some uh, different as the idea of the family has evolved and as less um, children are living in the same physical location as their biological mother and father uh, has changed uh, for sure over the years and um, through either shacking up uh, cohabitation, living together, and, and or uh, marriages and dissolution of marriages and breakups of the shackarees and or the uh, cohabitators. And then the parties re-engaging with other adults, um, living in different places and maybe even having different children. Uh, so there's um, the, the typical nuclear family has definitely evolved uh, over the years. The last study I think I saw, less than 50% of children live with in a nuclear family with the biological mom and dad living in the same location. So that certainly has changed. And for some of you, this could be uh, something that you've experienced uh, for the better or worse, just depending upon the set of circumstances. So getting uh, back to the text here, communication in the family, it says, today social scientists, lawyers, judges, and religious folks and the public at large have grappled with a more broad definition of the family as they've pondered questions such as who the parents are um, and those kind of things. So uh, that's definitely uh, has changed um, over the years. So there are a bunch of different uh, definitions. The um, author of this t textbook has uh, one uh, there may be others, but this one says a family is defined as a system with two or more interdependent people who have a common history and a present reality and who expect to influence each other in the future. So this is a definitely a broader definition that you would have than, than you would find uh, maybe even 20, 25, 30 years ago. So although the concept of family has definitely evolved, changed over the years, uh, there still is a, kind of a, an idea of a, quote, traditional family system and then a less traditional family system. 
Some people would say that there is no such thing as a traditional family system. A family is whatever they say it is and however they uh, align the different relationships. So you can pursue those different ideas. Creating the family through communication. Families are based on, informed, and maintained through communication. It's through communication that family members create mental models of family life, and through communication, those models endure over time and across uh, generations. And then it says, we describe several ways that communication shapes and constitutes the family. One is family narratives. Two, communication rituals and rules. So we'll talk about those briefly. It says, family stories often have meaning that goes beyond the incident being recounted. Some may reflect beliefs about work. I walked up the hill both ways in the snow barefoot. Family identities, uh, stories related to coming to the United States from various countries. And warnings, you don't want to end up like, you know, your cousin, your, your you know, you know, you know, things like that. Narratives may reflect a family's view of how members relate to one another. We help each other out a lot, or we're proud of each other, or proud of our heritage. Others reflect values about how to operate in the world, uh, such as it's possibly successful without a good education, those kind of things. Even dysfunctional families can be united by a shared narrative. And I think they are. Um, so there are some narratives even in dysfunctional families. One study showed that families who regularly engage in positive storytelling have high levels of family functioning and satisfaction. Family narratives. Next, communication, rituals, and rules. Rules are another way family is created through communication. Some rituals center on celebration, um, such as Thanksgiving, Easter celebrations, football games, those kind of things. Other rituals are part of everyday life. Good-natured teasing about family members' quirks or saying I love you at the end of every phone conversation. Rituals aren't the only way that families create their own communication system. As unique cultures, families also have their own rules about a variety of communication practices. Some communication rules are explicit, such as if you're going to be more than a half hour late, phone home. Other rules aren't even discussed, but they're just as important. If mom slams the door after coming home from work, wait until she's had time to relax before speaking to her. Some rules govern uh, communication within the family. And, yeah. Other researchers have showed that some topics are allowed and encouraged where others are discouraged and are off limits. So all families have those where they encourage certain ones and allow certain ones and then say these are verboten or forbidden. Other rules, often explicit, govern, govern communicating with people outside the family. I'm on page 318. For example, parents can restrict the areas that can be visited online as well as uh, after homework is done and how long children should be online. You know, kind of the one don't talk to strangers, those kind of things. So those are explicit rules governing communication. The examples about um, use of the um, um, online time and those kind of things it just kind of makes sense to limit the amount of time that we spend um, in non-face-to-face -face human interactions. It just makes good sense, and it will help develop more functional relationships. Uh, especially uh, young children should be discouraged from spending um, too much time on the iPads, on the phones, and those kind of things. And in regards to the specifics about what is too much, there's all sorts of uh, 
references that you can use on the interweb to find out what that means. I know with my grandson, um, I think he gets an hour. He's five, I think he gets an hour a day. And um, <clears throat> from my perspective, I think that's probably enough, but other people have different views of that. How much time do you watch television? How much time do you spend on the iPad? Those kind of things. But um, especially for young children, extended online time uh, does not create um, confidence in their ability to interact with um, other live humans, and then it, it will probably make it more difficult as they um, mature to um, initiate, um, create, and maintain relationships. There's a lot of good studies on CMC or computer-mediated communication that if you want to look deeper in, you can. This book doesn't doesn't have a, it has some on computer-mediated communication, but uh, because again, this book is seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Most of the the research uh, that they quote is probably even older than that. Okay, back to the show. Uh, patterns of family communication. Uh, families as a communication system. Family members are interdependent. A family is more than the sum of its parts. Families have systems with larger systems involved. Conversation and conformity in the family. All right, so that, that's a good start there. Okay, so page 318, 319, families as a communication system. Every family has its own unique ways of communicating. Despite these differences, all families are systems whose members interact with one another to form a whole. Next, family members are interdependent. If you touch one piece of a mobile, mobile, sorry, all the other parts will move in response. In the same way, one family member's feelings and behaviors affect all the other family members. For example, one family member leaves home to marry or a parent loses a job or there's a feud between siblings and they stop talking to one another, the system is no longer the same. Next, a family is more than a sum of its parts. Even if you knew each member separately, you still wouldn't understand the family system until you saw the members interact. And sometimes you see this when you go to friends' houses, and then you know that friend as an as independent person, but then you see how they, how they interact or behave differently with family members. Could be mother, father, could be other siblings. Families have systems within larger systems, like boxes within boxes. Families have subsystems, systems within families. For example, a traditional family of four can have six communication subsystems with two people, mother and father, mother-son, mother-daughter, father-son, father-daughter, daughter-son. If you add the three-person subsystem to the six, the number of combinations is even greater. A nuclear family itself is a subsystem of larger subsystems. Okay, I guess that kind of makes sense. Uh, a new study says that uh, that um, that illustrates that s uh, systemic the systemic nature of family interactions. Spouses reported a higher marital quality when they were equally responsible fa for family tasks. Uh, which uh, which shared tasks best predicted marriage satisfaction? Responsibility for child rearing. Well, that's not a shock. In other words, if parents want to improve their relationship with each other. One way to do so is to be more invested in the care of the children. Well, according to that, it would be uh, sharing that responsibility of raising the children. But a lot of these tasks, uh, gender role tasks, uh, people will um, fall into, and they will just repeat something that their uh, nuclear family or their, uh, their original family that they grew up in kind of copy that if there is a pattern that they thought uh, worked well within their family. Conversation and conformity in the family. 
They have this term called conversation orientation, which involves the degree to which families favor an open climate of discussion on a wide array of topics. Families with high conversation orientation interact freely, frequently, and spontaneously without many limitations regarding the topic or time spent interacting. They believe that interaction is important in order to have an enjoyable, rewarding family. So on the other hand, members of uh, families with low conversation orientation interact less and there's less exchange of private thoughts. Well, two different ideas. Conformity orientation is another idea here. It refers to the the degree to which family family communication stresses uniformity of attitudes, values, and beliefs. High conformity families seek harmony, interdependence, and obedience. They are often hierarchical with a clear sense that some members have more authority than the others. Yeah, usually the parents have more authority than the children. That probably would be true if we're talking about adults versus children. So it's not surprising that conflicts in the family are characterized by avoiding and um, obligating strategies. Conformity-oriented families communicate with their children for personal influence and to show affection. By contrast... Communication in families with low conformity orientation, they're characterized by individuality, interdependence, and equality. Okay, some different ideas about family communication. Moving on to page 322, effective communication in families. It's one thing to identify a family's communication pattern, it's another to improve it. So we talk about managing the connection autonomy dialectic. That's a mouthful. Strive for closeness while respecting boundaries. Encouraging, confirming messages. Okay, manage the, manage the connection autonomy. Effective communication in uh, families. So manage the connection autonomy dialectic. As children grow in adolescence, the leave me alone orientation becomes apparent. Teenagers who used to happily spend time with their parents may now groan at the thought of a family vacation or even the notion of sitting down at the dinner table for evening supper. They spend more time alone with friends, alone or with friends. Often answering the question, who am I, requires challenging family rules and beliefs, establishing powerful non-family relationships, and weakening family bonds. This is typical that at that age, usually around the teenage age, there is a uh, switch from an allegiance or alliance with uh, parents to uh, switch to peers. So if you have a choice between um, making a peer happy or making a mom or dad happy, uh, oftentimes teenagers, especially new teenagers, will choose peers over parents. Peers over parents. So this isn't unusual. Through, conf- through conflict, though, hopefully, an answer emerges to the question about who am I. Then the adolescents can turn around and reestablish good relationships with the family members. Families who are most successful at nego- negotiating this difficult period tend to be those with high flexibility who, for example, can change how they discipline and how they determine family roles. Adolescents are most likely to be healthy and well-adjusted when rules and roles can be discussed adult-to-adult with peers when they can explore alternative identities without excessive criticism, when their caring family relationships do not give way to conflict and abuse, and when they are encouraged to take responsibility for their lives. Those all kind of make sense, I, I think. In the United States, it's, un- it's common for children to move out of their family home to be launched when they are in their late teens or early 20s. Yeah, if you go back... Um, 
maybe 40, 50, 60 years ago, um, that age would be certainly um, young oftentimes, especially for males. Uh, once they turned 18, it was time to uh, leave the house and uh, move on. So over the years, that certainly has changed. It's not unusual for adolescents and for um, people as old as, uh, as late age as maybe 30-ish still to be living at home, or they leave when they're young and then return uh, when they are older. And then they get a place in the garage or basement, and then they will not leave. So it says, um, during this stage, young adults need to consider how to stay connected to the family and perhaps um, finding ways that uh, through social media. Studies of emerging adults show that post-launch communication patterns usually reflect how they converse with their parents before they left home. In other words, young adults from conversation-oriented families tend to be more open with their parents about everything from credit card use to more intimate matters. When a child moves out, dynamics change amongst the family members still at home. Yes, and then we can get our rooms back, and then we could remodel the house and have more room. Excellent. For example, parents need to renegotiate the coupleness, and both the parents and the remaining children need to negotiate who takes the roles previously filled by launched family members. Um, I know you may have seen that movie, Failure to Launch. This may be a good example of managing this connection autonomy uh, dialectic. Fair to launch Matthew McConaughey, in case you want to go look at that. Finally, communication uh, between elderly parents and their adult children provide its own set of challenges. In many families, interaction comes full circle as the children now provide for their parents while simultaneously meeting the obligations of their jobs in their own immediate families. You know, that's the cycle of life, isn't it? Next, striving for closeness while respecting boundaries. We all know the importance of keeping close ties with our kin, although too much cohesion can be a problem. When cohesion is too high, a family may be enmeshed. Enmeshed. A family may be enmeshed. That is, they suffer from too much consensus, too little independence, and very high demand for loyalty, all of which may feel stifling. However, on the other extreme, of course, members of the family with too little cohesion may be disengaged, disconnected with limited attachment or commitment to one another. Families cope with these dialectical tensions by creating boundaries, limits on families' actions. Communication research has devoted a good deal of attention to the importance of boundary management in interpersonal and family relationships. And I do recommend uh, books on boundaries. Uh, there's a, I forget the name of the author, but there's a, a series of Boundaries in dating, boundaries in parenting, boundaries in marriages, um, those kind of things. So look those up. Uh, in, in my experience, a lot of uh, dysfunctional relationships are directly uh, resultant from uh, boundary issues on one or both of the uh, parties. So please consider uh, getting, uh, doing some research on understanding uh, boundaries. In this case... It says that the families themselves will, um, will deal with the different boundaries. So for, I'll give you an example. So um, mom and dad say curfew time is 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock during the week or maybe Friday, Saturday, Saturday it's a little bit later. So the boundary would be, you know, be home by 11. And then when the youngsters come home at 11.15, 11.20, 
what are the consequences um, for breaking those those boundaries or not adhering to those limits? That's kind of a classic uh, example of how boundaries are set and then maybe negotiated or renegotiated, saying, okay, look, I'm a little bit older now. I should be able to stay out later, and then negotiating them uh, with uh, the, the adults in the home. That would be a classic example of boundary setting and then boundary jumping and then maybe boundary negotiating. Um, or it could be have to do with disciplining uh, for failure to meet the boundaries, for instance, um, being... Um, you know, not being allowed, grounded, so to speak, not being allowed to go out because the uh, you didn't make it home by the the um, boundary of the curfew, those kind of things. So take a look at that. Um, in some family discussions, uh, discussions of politics or sex or religion is off limits, uh, especially in this uh, interesting time we live with highly uh, politicized. Um, you know, emotions r surrounding politics and the social um, ideas of today. So in some cases, the family would say, you know, we don't talk about this, we don't talk about that, and here's the things we can talk about, and here's the things we can't talk about. It says sex here is one of the most avoided topics with parents. Money is also a delicate um, uh, one in families. Adult children who care for the elderly parents report that boundaries about finances always remain tricky especially when they're taking care of their parents' financial um, um, accounts. In addition to governing what to talk about, boundaries can also dictate how topics are handled. In some families, it's fine to persist if the first overture to disgust is rebuffed. In other families, privacy rules discourage this kind of persistence. Although the particulars may differ, every family has communication boundaries, and newcomers would be wise to learn and heed these boundaries. So if you have a, uh, a um, in, uh, introducing parents to a boyfriend or girlfriend, um, knowing some of those boundaries would be helpful, and, uh, and some of those things will kind of be learned as there's greater interaction with these different um, new um, members.